Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Chapel Hill. My name is Julie Hawkins, and I am one of the pastors here. And this morning, the text that we're looking at is one of the most famous texts in the entire Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now that phrase, Good Samaritan, it has become synonymous with a person doing an unexpected and often anonymous good deed. I lost my wallet, my license, and my checkbook about 12 years ago. I blamed the fog of being a new parent. And the next day when they were returned to the leasing office at the apartment that we lived in by a man who found them in the parking lot of a doctor's office in Federal Way, where I had been the day before, uh, the leasing agent said to me, he didn't leave a name or anything. He was just a good Samaritan. That's the text that we're looking at today. It's found in Luke 10. Now, performing random acts of kindness, that is a good thing to do. But to reduce this parable down to a challenge to return lost wallets, it's kind of missing the point and the power of this incredible text. This text is so much more. This text answers one of life's greatest questions. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to get into heaven? And as you can imagine, the answer to that question is a lot deeper than simply returning a lost wallet. So if you would turn with me now to Luke 10, we're going to start in verse 25. And I want you to keep your Bibles open if you have them, because we're going to come back to this in two parts. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Our text begins with a lawyer standing up to test Jesus. Now, this isn't a lawyer like we think about lawyers, somebody in a courtroom like law and order, that type of thing. Now, in the first century Judea, lawyers were people who studied the law, the religious law. This lawyer was a man who would sit with other men and discuss the Mosaic law day in and day out. They'd look at it from all of the different angles. And this question that he's asking Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was like a baseline question for knowing a person's theology. It would be like asking a person, how do you cook your brisket? You can tell a lot about a person by how they cook their brisket. When Joey and I lived in Texas, you would go to a barbecue restaurant, and the first thing that you would order was the brisket, because that was the baseline. You would know if they were orthodox, if they used a dry rub. You would know if they were heretical, if they used liquid smoke. The question that he's asking right here is that baseline question. How do you cook your brisket? What kind of teacher are you? And he was hoping to trap him. He was hoping to find out that Jesus was a heretic. He wanted Jesus to be like liquid smoke. And Jesus responds to his question with the question. Jesus is very wise in doing that. He says, what is written in the law? How do you 
read it. I mean, this guy was the religious expert, right? He should know the answer to this question. And he answers by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. His response to the question is to quote the two most famous parts of the law, the first being what is called the Shema. Now, Orthodox Jews, they still recite the Shema every morning and every evening. They have it written on tiny little scrolls that are rolled up and put in boxes that they wear on their wrists and on their foreheads. This is a very literal interpretation of the Deuteronomy 6 text that says, say these things when you lay down and when you rise up, bind them to your wrists and to your forehead. So it's very likely that this lawyer had that commandment right here on his forehead when he recited it to Jesus. It was the greatest commandment. And then the second, love your neighbor as yourself, was what they would call the second greatest commandment. Jesus was familiar with these two questions, these two commandments. He quoted them several times in Matthew 12 and in Matthew 2. In Matthew 22, he says, on, this, on these commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So we know that Jesus knew how important these were. And so when the lawyer asked that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then answers his own question, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself Jesus says, you are correct. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. All you have to do to inherit eternal life is love God with every single part of your being, from your intellect to your emotions to your actions to your words, every single day perfectly. And love your neighbor as yourself no cutting corners, no taking days off, love God, love people perfectly. All you have to do to inherit eternal life is be perfect. Does anybody see a problem with that? The problem is that it is an impossible task. The lawyer should have heard this and wept and said, I can't do that. Is there any other way? But instead, he has one more question for Jesus. It says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? I find it so interesting that the lawyer thinks he's got the loving God part figured out. He doesn't have a question about that, but he wants to know what is his obligation to love others. There has to be a limit to that. Jesus isn't asking him to love everyone, right? And so he wants to know who exactly do I have to love? And in response to this, Jesus tells our familiar parable. We're going to pick up the text in verse 30. Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, when we read this parable at face value with our 21st century eyes, it sounds like a story about kindness and mercy. It's a challenge to go and do likewise. We often read parables in our current context almost like they're Aesop's fables. They are a challenging story with a good moral teaching at the end. But this isn't how Jesus used parables. Jesus used parables to explain God's kingdom. They were like public service announcements for what the kingdom of God would look like. And they were often surprising to the original audience, and they were often shocking. Parables said things like, what good shepherd doesn't leave his 99 sheep to find the one that was lost? Anybody in the original audience that heard that parable would say, no good shepherd. No good shepherd would leave 99 sheep to find one sheep that was lost. It would have been shocking. And this parable would have absolutely been shocking to the first century audience. You probably would have heard audible gasps from the listening crowd. There was only one part of the story that wasn't shocking, and that was that the man was beat up and left for dead on the Jericho Road because the Jericho Road was notoriously dangerous and full of thieves. But for a priest to see him and then cross the street and go the opposite direction, never. For a Levite to do the same thing, absolutely not. These men were religious leaders in the community. They were well-respected, and they were loved. And there is no way that they would not have just walked by. There is no way that they would not have stopped to help. But then the shock continues. When they heard that word, but a Samaritan, at first they would have thought, oh gosh, this guy is really unlucky. He's going to get kicked while he's down. But then for the Samaritan to be the one who stopped and showed compassion, mortifying. It would have been absolutely mortifying. Because Jews and Samaritans, they hated, I mean hated each other. This is a hatred that went back 700 years. There was a popular prayer in the first century that Jews would pray. It said, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Yeah, shocking. Just the chapter before in Luke's gospel, the disciples and Jesus are passing by a Samaritan village, and the the Samaritans don't receive them, and the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven on this village? That is the level of hatred that they felt for one another. Some scholar, the, Jesus rebuked the disciples in that moment and said, no, you can't do that. And some scholars believe that this parable probably added to the rebuke. 
But they never, ever would have imagined that a priest and a Levite would pass by, but a hated and vile Samaritan was the one who stopped and showed compassion. This is unimaginable, unthinkable. I tried to think about what that would look like for us in our current context, and this is the closest that I could come. A Seahawks fan was walking down the road, and he got beat up and left for dead. A little while later, a Kraken fan on his way to game three, anybody else suddenly become a hockey fan? Lord, hear our prayer tonight is the night. A Kraken fan is walking down the road, and he sees him, and he crosses over to the other sidewalk. A little while later, a Sounders fan sees the man, and he too crosses to the other sidewalk. But then a little while later, a guy in a 49ers jersey is walking down the street, (laughs) and he's the one who helps. I shared this illustration with my husband, Joey, and he said, I'm sorry, babe, that that just doesn't work. There is no way that a Sounders fan wouldn't stop and help. (laughs) And then I had to confess to him, and I really don't believe that a 49ers fan would stop and help. I really don't believe that. And also, I don't know if I were the Seahawks fan beat up on the side of the road that I would want a 49ers fan (laughs) to stop and help me. I... I repent. The Lord is still working on me. If we have any Niners fans out there, I apologize, and I pray that God would change your heart and that you would see the light. But that's what it would be like, but so, 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 so much more. No one in the Jewish audience would have expected the Samaritan to be the hero of the story. And here he is. He is the one who is moved to compassion. He stops what he is doing and he helps this man who he was supposed to hate. He binds up his wounds. He pours out oil and wine to soothe the wounds, to fight off infection. He could have stopped there and it would have been life-saving. He could have stopped there and we would have said, that is admirable, but he continues. He lifts the man onto his own donkey. He takes him to a roadside inn. He keeps watch over him during the night. Again, he could have stopped there, and it would have been above and beyond, but he continues on. He, the next morning, gives the innkeeper two denarii. Two denarii would have been two days' wages, and it would have paid for two months at an inn like this. And he gives the innkeeper a blank check and says, I will come back again, and I will pay whatever is owed on his his bill. That is unimaginable. And the crowd would have been dumbfounded. It is absolutely shocking. So why did Jesus tell this shocking parable? That's the question that we should be asking. Why did Jesus tell this parable? I want you to remember back to the first question that the lawyer asked. He's responding to who is my neighbor, but the initial question was, what can I do to inherit eternal life. What can I do to inherit eternal life? You see, the original audience, they would have looked to the priest and the Levite with their rituals and their worship and their adherence to the law as the model citizens doing the right thing. Be like the priest. Be like the Levite, and you will inherit eternal life. But here Jesus is saying, those rituals, they won't save you. And there's no way that you can adhere to that law perfectly. And 
model citizens. The kingdom of God includes people that you wouldn't consider model citizens. The kingdom of God includes people you would consider your enemies, people that you hate, people like the Samaritan. And when we read this parable, we want to say, be like the Samaritan. Be a good neighbor. That's typically what you hear when you hear a sermon on the Good Samaritan, ways that you can be a good neighbor. That's the, summer, the sermon that I planned to preach. That's the sermon that I wanted to preach. I wanted to give you ways to be like the Samaritan. I was going to have it neatly packaged up into a five-point sermon that had an acronym that spelled the word mercy. Y'all should have seen what I was going to do with the letter Y. It was going to be incredible. But saying be like the Samaritan, good, do good deeds, is not much different than saying do rituals and you will have eternal, eternal life. Be like the Samaritan, do good deeds and you shall have eternal life. It doesn't work that way. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There is nothing, nothing that any of us can do on our own to inherit eternal life. Be like the priest? No. Be like the Samaritan? No. We are the man in the road, desperate for someone to come and save us. The question isn't, what can I do to inherit eternal life? It's, what did Jesus do so that I can have eternal life in him? Because Jesus, he moved towards us when we were bleeding, when we were broken, when we were naked and exposed in our sin. Jesus poured out his own blood. He was wounded for our transgressions so that we might be healed. Jesus lifted us up as he was lifted up from death to life. And Jesus, he paid our debt so that we might have eternal life in him. The answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Amen and hallelujah. And once we recognize that, once we recognize that it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are saved, once we recognize that it is because we have been shown this over and abundant love and mercy, well then we are able to turn around and show that love and mercy to the world around us. In fact, I think that we shouldn't be able to help ourselves. I think that when you prick a Christian, they should bleed mercy because it should overflow. We do not inherit eternal life because we do good deeds. We do good deeds because we have inherited eternal life. This is what James, who wrote the book of James, and he probably heard this parable spoken the first time. This is what he's talking about when he says faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead because we do them because we have inherited eternal life through Jesus as an outpouring, an overflowing of the mercy that we have received. Because those who have been shown mercy become those who show mercy. Rather than us taking the time to look at this passage and try and define who is the neighbor that we have to love, we are defining the love that we give to our neighbors. Jesus asked the lawyer, who was the neighbor in this story? And the man answered, the one who showed mercy. Suddenly, it becomes more about the mercy and the love and less about who is the neighbor. And suddenly, our definition of who our neighbor might be, it's much, much broader. It includes everybody in the entire world. 
those who have been shown mercy become the ones who show mercy. Now, I'm not going to give you five ways that you can be a good neighbor like the Good Samaritan, but I am going to show you a few characteristics of this mercy that we have been shown, and now we get to go and show others. We are called to go and give to others. First, this type of mercy is risky. There's risk involved in showing mercy. We want to show mercy under ideal conditions. We want to make sure the person really deserves it before we give it. We want to make sure that they're going to do something with it. And we want to make sure that we're not going to get burned or hurt. We want to make sure that we're going to be appreciated for it. The Samaritan, he knew nothing about the man in the middle of the road other than that he was supposed to hate him. That was the only thing he knew about him, that he was his enemy. It was a great risk for him to stop and help his enemy, not just because the road was dangerous, but because of the hatred between Samaritans and Jews. And he had compassion. He was willing to take that risk. Don't limit God's mercy to who you think deserves it. Take the risk and show it. Thank God that he did not wait to show us mercy until we deserved it, because we would still be waiting for that mercy. The second characteristic of this type of mercy is that it's inconvenient. I know I'm really selling it, aren't I? It's risky, it's inconvenient, sign me up, I want to be a part of it. But it's true. The Samaritan in our story is the only person that was on their way to something. It says that the priest and the Levite were there by chance, but the Samaritan was on a journey. He was going someplace, and he was willing to stop everything that he was doing so that he could show mercy to this person because he had compassion. He delayed it by at least a day, then he came back to show mercy again. This is a real challenge for us because we live busy lives. It is not convenient to slow down and show people mercy. It is always going to be an inconvenience, and it is something that we have to be willing and choose to do. I hope that we don't limit God's mercy to our scheduled availability, because if we do, it's never going to happen. We have to let mercy inconvenience us. We have to have our eyes open to see the people around us that need God's mercy. You don't want to miss them. And I have to tell you, they're all around us because we live in a broken and hurting world that is hungry and anxious for God's mercy. And Jesus, he was willing to be inconvenienced. He was in the form of God, but he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He took on the form of man so that we might receive his mercy. That is good news for us. The third characteristic is that it's sacrificial. Everything the Samaritan did from the moment he saw the man was sacrifice and generous, but it was beyond generous. From the binding of his wounds with his own clothes to the pouring out of his wine and oil, that was his food, to paying the innkeeper, to giving further payment, promising a blank check. This is beyond generous. It is sacrificial. What would it look like for us to be sacrificial in our mercy and our giving? 
I've realized recently that this is something that I need to consider myself. I consider myself a generous person. Joey and I, we love opening our home to anybody who wants to come. We always have room for one more at our table. We love giving of ourselves. We love giving our time, our resources. We consider ourselves generous people. But the reality is I can be generous and still be pretty comfortable. In our Gig Harbor world, many of us can be generous and still be pretty comfortable. What does it look like for us to be sacrificial? It's something that Joey and I are wrestling through, asking the Lord, how are you calling us to be sacrificial in our mercy, in our generosity, and in our giving? And I want you to ask yourself that same question. How might God be calling you to love your neighbor in a sacrificial way. And the fourth thing about this type of mercy is it is ongoing. The Samaritan, he didn't just wait for proof of life and then leave. He made a promise to come back. His mercy didn't stop when the bleeding stopped. No, his mercy, it continued to flow through ongoing relationship and a promise of his return. If we want to live out this mercy, it's not a one-and-done thing. It's a walking alongside people, walking with one another. Mercy, it becomes a journey. It becomes a relationship. Now, I want to end by talking about what this mercy might look like. It might look like stopping on the side of the road and helping somebody in significant need. It might look like stopping the bleeding. At the same time, though, I want to encourage you that if that is the case, that you continue on with that person, that, that you continue on in a relationship with them, that you look, think about what it means to be a neighbor to that person. It might look like giving of your time, opening up your schedule so that you can be a person who shows mercy. Our benevolence office here at the church, it helps people in material need and walks alongside them on their journey towards mercy. And right now we have seven volunteers who are very active and very engaged in our benevolence ministry. We would love to call a few more people to that ministry. And if you're interested in knowing more about that, please send me an email. I would love to help connect you to our benevolence ministry. Mercy, it looks like a bunch of different things. It could look like seeing someone who you don't think deserves mercy. Seeing the person who is the Samaritan in your life and asking the Lord, what does it look like for me to show them mercy? How can I be an agent of mercy to this person that I'm supposed to hate? It might look like inviting somebody from your gym or from your t-ball team over for dinner. It might look like inviting people to your home, to your table, and living real life with them, talking to them about what this mercy might look like, being on that journey together. It can look like a lot of different things, but it always reflects the mercy that we have been given by Christ. It is risky, it is inconvenient, it is sacrificial, and it is ongoing because it is abundant. Those who have been shown mercy are the ones who show mercy. And so this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, who is God calling you to be a neighbor to? Who is God calling you to show mercy to? We're going to take some time to pray about that right now. We're going to pray that God would grow our hearts of mercy, that we would receive his mercy, and that we would be able to give it to others. Would you join me now as we pray? Father, we are so grateful that you saw us lying 
in the road and that you moved towards us and that you showed us your mercy through the gift of your son, Jesus. Jesus, I pray for anybody who is in this room this morning who has not experienced that mercy. Would you open their hearts so that they might receive it? Would you open their hearts so they might be one who inherits that eternal life in you? Father, we pray that you would grow our hearts for mercy, that we would be over and abundantly overflowing with the mercy that you have given us, that we would go out into the world and that we would see those who need your love, need your goodness, need your mercy. Help us to see the people we think don't deserve it. Soften us, change us. We repent of the ways that we have built walls between us and others. Would you tear them down in your name? We pray that you would help us to welcome people into our home, that we would be generous and sacrificial in the way that we enter into relationship with others. Father, through the work of this church, we pray that we would have hundreds and hundreds of agents of your mercy out there showing the world your good, good love. Would you continue to grow us to be more and more like the image of your Son? And we pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.